and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hi, Julia. Hi. Hi. Yay. Yeah, how are things? Things are pretty good. Yeah. I texted in earlier with my brother, Billy, who he is out of army now. Oh, your youngest, my youngest, brother. youngest brother. He is out of army. Um, he has all of his awards um, from army he, from army. Yeah. He, he got a stuffed seal for marksmanship and a gorilla for sand racing. <laughs> um, we, I will say to our listeners, Julia and I frequently and with complete deadpan seriousness will refer to it as army. Yeah. That's from Arrested Development for of course. people who haven't watched that. But. Be like, so how's Billy doing in Army? Like, well, Army has him doing this and this and this. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And full disclosure, um, my family, I have we have three generations of Bill Novakovics who've been mm. in the Army. So uh, my grandfather, Novakovic, was in World War II, and he was in charge of the um, carrier pigeons in Asia for That's the army. That's cool. And then my dad was in Vietnam and um, my brother Billy was in Iraq last year. So cool. we have three generations. William Novakovics who have, who have been in army. So, um, <laughs> and my dad's, my dad was a history teacher, all this stuff. Oh, yeah. So um, anyway, I got to chatting with him and I was like, you know what would be a great topic? Like the most important generals in American history, yes. because this has come up at trivia before. Absolutely. And I feel like there, I had a huge gap between like General Washington and like Colin Powell. So <laughs> yes. um, <laughs> that's yeah. a wide gap. Yes. So um, <laughs> I, I, I asked my dad, I said, can you, can you give me the top five generals that, that everyone should know? And he gave me a list of 13. Okay. So, okay, good. Yeah. Almost three times that. uh So this is going to be a nice, just real easy, calm listening episode. I'm comfortable. (laughs) I'm, I'm not wearing pants with a button, you know, I'm ready. Let's do this. So this episode is called Generally Speaking. So before I start talking to you about the generals, okay. I need to tell you kind of the hierarchy there. Okay. So we have the Department of Defense. It's made up of three military departments. So you have the Department of the Army, the Department of the Navy, and the Department of the Air Force. So the United States Army, abbreviated USA, is the land warfare service branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. And the cabinet level position of Secretary of Defense, who as of this recording is Jim Mattis, um, he has three civilians serving underneath him in the military departments. That includes the Secretary of the Army, who is responsible for all matters relating to the U.S. Army. That includes manpower, personnel, environmental issues, weapons systems, financial management, and communications. Uh, The Army is the oldest U.S. military service officially established by the Continental Congress on June 14th, 1775. And it is also the largest military branch. Uh, we have ranks in the U.S. Army. So there are three main categories of rank and rate in the Army. Uh, the first is enlisted personnel. That's privates, corporals, and sergeants. The second are warrant officers. And then lastly, you have commissioned officers. And the commissioned officer's primary function is to provide overall management and leadership in their area of responsibility. And there are... 10 ranks of commissioned officers. So I'm going to tell you what they are from like lowest to highest and what their insignia are. So that's like what um, kind of bars or pins you would see on them to Mm -hmm. denote what their, um, what their level is. So, First up is a second lieutenant. That's abbreviated 2LT. 
That's like you. Oh, it's like <laughs> there's two of me. LT and LT. Uh, so the second lieutenant has an upright gold rectangular bar as their insignia. Okay, simple, elegant. Yeah, sure. Next, we have the first lieutenant, abbreviated 1LT. Uh, that's an upright silver rectangular bar. So like the second lieutenant one, but silver instead of gold. I feel like I have a pair of earrings like that. <laughs> you must. Yeah, I mean, please. <laughs> I'm an LT. <laughs> After first lieutenant, we have captain, abbreviated CPT, and that is two upright silver rectangular bars. Okay, then sensing a trend. major, M-A-J, that ruins the trend. It is a gold leaf that has seven points. A gold leaf? Mm-hmm. That has seven points. Yeah. So, so like a maple leaf has like five oh, points. Okay. Or, I don't know why mm. I was thinking of like like a mint like, leaf <laughs> with like, <laughs> like low. It's very specific. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A leaf with seven points. Yes. Is a, is a major. Okay. Then you have a lieutenant colonel that's abbreviated LTC and that's a silver leaf with seven points. So okay. we're going from gold to silver most times. So it seems as though so far mm-hmm. that the lower rank of each, I don't know, grouping is gold and the higher level is sil- silver. Yeah. And okay. that happens just a couple times here. Okay, great. Um, so after the lieutenant colonel, we have a colonel, C-O-L, that is a silver eagle with a crest and arrows. So it looks very different. And then we get into the generals. So after a colonel, you have a brigadier general, that's BG, and they have one silver star. Okay. Then we have a major general, MG, two silver stars. Okay. Then lieutenant general, LTG, that's three silver stars. All right, I'm getting this. Yeah. And then general, G-E-N, how many silver stars do you think it is? Four. Yes. Boom. Four silver stars. So when someone says he's a four-star general. That means he's the highest level of general that he can be. Okay. Yes. I Okay. So I was assuming that it, that meant that it was redundant, but it's not. No. Okay. Um, it, it's just a, another way for people to kind of understand. Because if you said you're a one-star general, maybe someone wouldn't know what that means. Yeah. Like a brigadier general mm-hmm. is, a, is one-star general. But yeah, a four-star general is the highest general you can be. Mm-hmm. There is... A five silver star general, what? which is the general of the army, which is reserved for wartime only. Okay. So there have only been five five star generals in the history of America, and okay. I will tell you about them later. Um, but so no one right now is the five star general of the army. The and there can only can be, be one. Yes. Like Highlander. Yes. Okay. Yes. Great. <laughs> um, so I have, I made up my own mnemonic so that mm. you could remember at least the generals in this whole grand scheme of things okay so my mnemonic is bring me larger generals <laughs> that's one star up to four so wait though can in a mnemonic device can you use the word whatever that it's, i just right. did okay right. bring me larger gemstones oh there ooh, yeah Does that work i would like Better? some okay so <laughs> b for brigadier general that's mm-hmm. one m for major. major general that's two lieutenant general is three and then general is four so just nice. so you have an idea when you're, when I love you're listening that. to it. So I just told you that General Army re- reserved for wartime only is five silver stars. There is, that was General of the Army. There is also the General of the Armies, plural. It is the highest possible 
rank in the United States Army. It's informally equated to that of what a six-star general would be and is currently the highest possible operational rank of the U.S. Armed Forces. The rank has only been held twice in history and only once by an active duty officer, um, General John J. Pershing, who I will talk about, and once by posthumous promotion to George Washington in 1976. Understandable. And the rank of general of the armies is senior to all of the other leaders in all of the other armed forces. So senior to general of the army, general of the air force and the fleet admiral. So he's the big, he is like the the highest highest he could possibly be. And only two guys have ever been this. And one of them was dead. (laughs) Well, the other one's dead now too, but I mean, I mean, yeah, he's now dead, but at the time he was alive when he was made this. Now I might be jumping ahead, Uh but is this, is what was the reason for this? Um, just, just like we needed someone to be named higher than it was possible. Was it wartime? Yes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. We'll talk about them. So that was all of the kind of, uh, groundwork you need to know for this. So, um, I'm going chronologically through, through time. You know, Here as you do chronologically, the ocean of time. Um, starting with the American Revolutionary War. So Great. for each war, I'm going to, you know, kind of tell you when it took place and then some of the major people you need to know. I'm not giving you like their entire backstory. Like he was born on a farm in yep. rural South Carolina. Because honestly, they're all born yeah. on farms in rural yep. South We're Carolina. We're talking about their military career and like maybe some of the battles um, that you should know and the, and the reasons why these guys are important. Great. Okay. So American Revolutionary War. Americans versus the British, 1775 to 1783. Uh, You got to know George Washington. Sure. So he was born in 1732, died in 1799. Um, In 1775, George Washington was appointed general and commander in chief of the United Colonies and all of its forces. So although Washington ranked as a full general in the Continental Army, he resigned his commission prior to the establishment of the U.S. Army in 1784 and is therefore actually considered never to have held the U.S. Army rank of general. Yeah. Um, When Washington served in the army, he was a major general. So he had two stars. And after his presidency, John Adams promoted him to lieutenant general, three stars. The exact phrasing of the law passed in 1976 to promote Washington's starts. Quote, whereas it is considered fitting and proper that no officer of the United States Army should outrank Lieutenant General George Washington on the army list. So part of the reason that that general of the army's uh, position was created was because like no one should ever be better than George Washington. <laughs> okay, I can see yeah. that. Um, another guy from the American Revolution is Nathaniel Green. So he was born in 1742, died in 1786. Um, he was a major general of the Continental Army in the American Revolutionary War, and he emerged from the war as Washington's most gifted and dependable officer. And he is known for his successful command in the Southern Theater of the War. So in December 1780, Green was appointed to command the Continental Army in the South, and he engineered a series of Pyrrhic victories over the British in the Carolinas at Cowpens, Guilford Courthouse, Hobkirk's hill and you lost springs which turned the tide of the war and set the stage for washington's crowning victory at yorktown in 1781 so nathaniel green was second only in washington among the officers of the american army and military ability and the only general other than washington and henry knox to serve the entire eight years of the war and it's fair to say that washington trusted no one in his military family more than green um and people who love hamilton um calling out Dane right here. Um, He is referenced specifically in Hamilton when George Washington is trying to get Hamilton to become his secretary in the song Right Hand Man from Lin-Manuel Miranda's, you know, musical Hamilton. You might have heard of it. Mm, Doesn't ring a bell, but I believe you. Yes. Okay. 
A couple decades later, we have the War of 1812. Mm, And you know that well. I know Because... Uh, Lauren did a whole episode entitled Mr. Madison's War on the War of 1812. You can go back to our through our back catalog and listen to that. Download it. It's a good one. Yeah. Uh, War of 1812 is Americans versus the British, um, 1812 to 1815, yeah, technically. Around. So the general from that war that you got to know is Andrew Jackson. Mm. So he was born in 1767, died in 1845. Nicknamed Old Hickory for his legendary toughness, um, Jackson had spent time dealing with hostile members of the Creek Native American tribe in Alabama and also being really annoying to the British um, um, along the Gulf Coast during that war. Uh, Jackson had no love for the British as a former prisoner of theirs from the Revolutionary War. And he told his wife, quote, I owe to Britain a debt of retaliatory vengeance. Should our forces meet, I trust I shall pay the debt. Like he... He effing hated the. Bridge. He was a royal dick yeah. too. This is the same guy who did the um, the smallpox blankets and <laughs> and like really hated a lot of Native Americans and was kind of a racist. In fact, in college, I don't know if I told this story in the Mister Madison's War, but in college, I was in local theater, as you can possibly hmm. imagine. You. I know I'm such a shrinking violet, <laughs> but um, one of my cohort wrote and uh, wrote a musical called Jackson exclamation point which was all about Andrew Jackson Mm -hmm. and there were songs about smallpox and they're like at one point someone comes out of the audience to like to like beat him was was like arguing with him and then they beat him with a cane like it was it was like the story of Andrew Jackson in an hour and a half did they just plagiarize bloody bloody Andrew Jackson oh my god was that a thing (laughs) yeah you know what that's an American comedy musical about Andrew Jackson. No. I'm the, all these years I've been like that guy was so brilliant, such a genius thing. Uh like a precursor to Hamilton but like funny. Oh no, that that was He I was a just plagiarist. Bloody bloody Andrew Jackson. What the f- <laughs> All right. C- please continue. My I'm going to I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry no, it's I burst okay. your bubble. No, it's better it's better that I get the honesty and the truth. So um, if if y'all remember, the Treaty of Ghent in Belgium was signed on December 24th, 1814 between Great Britain and the United States, which was supposed to effectively end the War of 1812. But news was slowed across the pond. Of course. Okay. So 1814, the treaty is signed. After arriving in New Orleans in December 1814, Major General Andrew Jackson instituted martial law in the city. He formed an alliance with the pirate Jean Lafitte and his smugglers, and he formed military units consisting of African-Americans and Muscogees, in addition to recruiting volunteers in the city. And these forces, along with U.S. Army regulars and volunteers from surrounding states, joined Jackson in defending New Orleans from the approaching British force, led by Admiral Alexander Cochrane and later General Edward Pakenham, who had more than 10,000 soldiers, many with many years of experience. Um, So Jackson had only about 5,000 men, most of whom were inexperienced and poorly trained. The American combatants weathered a frontal assault by the superior British force, inflicting devastating casualties along the way. On January 8th, 1815, the two sides met at the Battle of New Orleans in what is remembered as one of the conflict's biggest and most decisive engagements. Within 30 minutes, the British suffered more than 2,000 casualties, while Jackson's army had only lost less than 100 men. 
Uh, future President James Monroe would later praise the general by saying, quote, history records no example of so glorious a victory obtained with so little bloodshed on the part of the victorious. So the Americans stopped the British from seizing New Orleans and the vast territory in the U.S. Um, that had been acquired with the Louisiana Purchase. And the victory vaulted Jackson to national stardom. Mm. So like this was like this was gigantic. Like I of course. there's not even anything from modern day that I can yeah. equate this to. That That's insane. Yeah. Um, so again, yes, with 21st century eyes, um, sure. Jackson is not without controversy. Yeah. He was a he was slave a owner um, and his actions against Native Americans are somewhat questionable. And so his <laughs> I'm being diplomatic. Yeah, I'm sorry. a historian. Um, no, you're right. So you're right. his his modern reputation is is not nearly as sterling as his 1815 reputation was. Yes. Um, and following the war, Jackson remained in command of army forces on the southern border of the United States. Mm. He conducted official business from his home in Tennessee, the Hermitage, and he signed treaties with the Cherokee and Chickasaw, which gained for the United States large parts of Tennessee and Kentucky. And then, you might have heard, he later served as seventh president of the United States from 1829 to 1837. A couple decades later, moving right along, we got the Civil War, American Civil War. So that's the um, Union states the united states of america mm -hmm. versus the confederacy which was the confederate states of america and that was 1861 to 1865 so robert e lee yes a confederate general yeah. um he was born in 1807 died in 1870 he was an american and a confederate soldier best known as commander of the confederate states army he was an exceptional officer and military engineer in the u.s army for 32 years and during this time he served throughout the united states distinguished himself during the mexican-american war and served as superintendent of the united states military academy and when virginia declared its succession from the union in april 1861 lee chose to follow his home state despite his desire for the country to remain intact yeah um and he was actually off like a senior union command position mm -hmm. but he declined it because he wanted to stay loyal to his state so um during the first year of the civil war lee served as military senior advisor to the confederate president jefferson davis and once he took command of the main field army in 1862 he emerged as a shrewd tactician and battlefield commander winning most of his battles all against far superior union armies but ultimately lee surrendered his entire army to ulysses s grant at appomattox courthouse on april 9th 1865 uh, Lee rejected the proposal of a sustained insurgency against the Union, and he called for reconciliation between the two sides. After the war, um, he filled out an application to have his U.S. citizenship restored, but the paperwork was lost, what? and he was not reinstated during his lifetime. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, he died in 1870 while serving as president of Washington College, later Washington and Lee University in yeah. Lexington, Virginia. His compatriot, Stonewall Jackson, mm. uh, he was born in 1824, died in 1863. Um, his, his actual name is Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Yeah. Uh, nickname Stonewall. Stonewall. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He served as a Confederate general during the American Civil War and became arguably the best known Confederate commander after General Robert E. Lee. Okay. So when Virginia seceded from the Union in May 1861 after the attack on Fort Sumter, uh, Jackson followed and joined the Confederate Army. He distinguished himself commanding a brigade at the First Battle of Bull Run in July 1861, uh, providing crucial reinforcements and beating back a fierce Union assault. Someone compared him to a stone wall, oh, hence uh, his enduring nickname. Uh, Jackson played a prominent role in nearly all military engagements in the Eastern theater of war until his death. And he had an important part in winning many significant battles at the battle of Chancellorsville in May, 1863, Jackson was hit by friendly fire requiring his left arm to be amputated. 
but he did he died of pneumonia eight days later so military historians regard jackson as actually one of the most gifted tacticians in u.s history his um, strategies are studied even still today Uh, his death proved a severe setback for the confederacy affecting not only its military prospects but also the morale of its army and of its general public so jackson and death became an icon of southern heroism and commitment um there's a big uh monument down in georgia called stone mountain uh that oh, yeah. stone is mountain, a big georgia. yeah stone mountain georgia it's a big carving uh it depicts three confederate figures so jefferson davis robert e lee and stonewall jackson carved onto this mountain it's a very it's a very cool monument even you know for yeah i mean you know the, uh, as a feat of sculpture sure. on a mountain great great <laughs> Just wanted you to know it was there. Uh, Stone Martin, Stone Mountain, Georgia, hometown of uh, Kenneth Donald Page. Well, well Donald, <laughs> Donald Glover, as previously mentioned in Mister Information, um, who wrote all of the dialogue for Kenneth Parcell in Thirty Rock, and therefore they made Kenneth That's from awesome. Stone Mountain, Georgia. As I well. just like just made that connection yeah. right here when you were saying it. Yeah. Uh, but of course, on the Union side, you have General Ulysses S. Grant. Love him. Love him. Born in 1822, died in 1885. He was born Hiram Ulysses Grant, and later his name was kind of altered to Ulysses Simpson Grant. Um, he was a prominent United States Army general during the American Civil War and commanding general at the conclusion of the war. So after retiring from West Point in 1843, Grant served with distinction in the Mexican-American War. Grant retired from the Army in 1854, but struggled financially in civilian life. And when the Civil War began in 1861, he rejoined the U.S. Army. Uh, and he quickly rose through the ranks. As a general, Grant took control of Kentucky, most of Tennessee, and won major battles at Shiloh and seized Vicksburg, gaining control of the Mississippi River and dividing the Confederacy. So these victories persuaded Abraham Lincoln that Grant was the general best suited to lead the combined Union armies. And in April 1865, Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox, effectively ending the war. Historians have hailed Grant's military genius and his strategies are featured in military history textbooks. Um, After Lincoln's assassination, Grant became increasingly disillusioned by President Andrew Johnson's approach to Reconstruction. So he was elected the 18th president of the United States in 1868. At that point in time, he was the youngest man ever elected to the presidency. He stabilized the post-war national economy, created the Department of Justice, and used the military to enforce laws in the former Confederacy. He also uh, prosecuted the Ku Klux Klan. Good. Uh, Grant appointed African Americans and Jewish Americans to prominent federal offices too. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I didn't know that. He was he was a he was great a good guy. guy. He drank a lot. Uh, I mean, uh, who didn't? Yeah, at that. Point. That's how you got clean water, I think. Still, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, sharp as a tack. Also, hometown connection. Uh-huh. Uh, the Rochester Museum and Science Center, where I located reside. Located in Rochester, New Ro- York. Located in Rochester, New York, where I reside eight hours a day, five days a week. Uh, we have Grant's cigar. Ooh. One of his many cigars, I'm like, sure. Like, did his lips touch Yeah. It? <gasps> he, like, pulled it out of his mouth and was like, here you go. Here you he- go, kid. Like, did he, like, <laughs> give it to some... Yeah, it's like that Pepsi commercial or Coke commercial. is a Coke commercial. <laughs> the Mean Joe Green Coke commercial? Yeah, the commercial? Mean Joe Green. Yeah. Yeah, where he gives him his disgusting <laughs> jersey. I always thought that was so gross. Anyway... Grand cigar. Um, apparently, we had, um, and his name is going to escape me now. I think it was a former director, Charles Parker, um, and he was a great collector of things. And Grant's, someone gave him Grant's cigar because Grant 
was like, here you go, boy, and handed him a cigar, and then it was donated to our museum. So it doesn't really, like, the provenance doesn't really have a connection besides the fact that Parker got it. And it's kind of hard to display. It's hard to display, and also it's kind of hard to prove. Like, we have the provenance, but that's just, like, what someone wrote down. Like, Ulysses S. Grant gave this to me one day. So... But we still call it Grant Cigar. I mean, we're going to believe. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's like 95% of the work right there. <laughs> we believe. Therefore, it's Grant Cigar. Perfect. So we had a couple decades off war, kind of. Yeah. A oh, little yeah. bit. A little bit. Then we have the First World War. Yes. The Great War. Uh, it was fought in Europe. It was the Allied powers, who were France, the Russian Empire, Britain, and later the United States, versus the Axis powers, who at the time were Germany, Austria-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and this war was fought from 1914 to 1918. The U.S. got involved in 1917. Yeah. So the guy from World War One that you got to know as an American, Ooh. John Joseph Blackjack Pershing. John Joseph Blackjack? Yeah, they called him Blackjack. Oh, oh okay. Is like That's the, where the quotations are Oh, yeah, I'm at the point in. where all these commanders are going to have a, like a at hot least. nickname. <laughs> a hot nickname. Just like, oh, just oh, like real men, good. Nobody these days has these kind of nicknames, all right? <laughs> all my men call me Blackjack. <laughs> yeah. So John Pershing, Blackjack Pershing. Uh, he was born in 1860, died in 1948. In 1897, Pershing was appointed to the West Point Tactical Staff as an instructor. And because of his strictness and rigidity, the cadets referred to him as Blackjack because of his service with the 10th Cavalry Regiment, a now famous segregated African-American unit in one of the original Buffalo Soldier Regiments. Um, So Buffalo Soldiers were established by Congress as the first peacetime all-black regiments in the regular U.S. Army after the Civil War. Um, Disclosure, they didn't call him Blackjack. They Called him a bad name, Jack, because oh. they were disparaging him for like working with African Americans. I but see, along okay. the way, it did get morphed into Black Jack, which sounds pretty great. Oh yeah, sounds <laughs> that's a great <laughs> nickname. Now started out as a bad nickname, but he turned that right back around and said, "You guys, you're dumb for saying these mean things about these nice guys." So he was a white guy. He was a white guy that they called mm, Black Jack. Black Jack. Yeah, that they call Black Jack. Yeah. Okay, and now all of a sudden that song "Buffalo Soldier" is really coming yeah, together. Yeah, it me. is the first peacetime all-black regiments in the okay. United States. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so Pershing served in the Spanish-American War. That was 1898 for a couple months. The Philippine-American War. That's 1899 to 1902. Uh, Pershing led the Mexican punitive expedition to capture Mexican Revolutionary General Sancho. See, I messed it up. And this fine. Leave it in. Mexican general Pancho Villa. Mm. Not Sancho Panza. I no. keep confused. Okay. When no, I was that's st- Mana La Mancha. When I was studying <laughs> when I was studying for Jeopardy and I'm taking all these notes and stuff like that, I'm like, Pancho Villa? That's not even a real person. My dad's like, no, like that's like a big bad Mexican general. Mm-hmm. Like he did all these really bad things. And I'm like, are you sure? I think he was with Don Quixote. So I confuse them. Guys, don't confuse them. Don't confuse Sancho them. Sancho Panza, fictional character. Yes. Pancho Villa, real, real guy, guy, bad guy. He attacked a town in New Mexico in the United States, like completely unprovoked. And so the... <laughs> The Mexican punitive expedition was sent to capture him. Good. Did they? Were they successful? You know what? They didn't capture oh, him, but they were sent to capture him. They they were like, "This guy's a bad guy, yeah. Pershing. You're the best. You go get, in get there, him." Blackjack. All right. So after he got back from not 
Well, no. actually, he got very busy, okay? Like, he couldn't just, like, <laughs> keep searching for Pancho Villa because the Great War was well, happening yeah, over of course, in Europe. Yeah. So, uh, Pershing was appointed to command the American Expeditionary Forces, the AEF, in France in okay. World War I from 1917 to 1919. He was the first American general to make use of airplanes in combat. He was advanced to the rank of general of the armies. So, oh, covering okay. all of the different high highfalutin ranks out of all of the armies okay that makes um, sense now so yeah he was super important to world war one okay. like you know when the u.s entered the war that was really the turning point anyway and pershing like knew his shit yeah so anyway uh he reti- he ended up retiring from the army in 1924 and he died in 1948 of heart of heart failure yeah sadly well yeah i mean you know he had a very stressful he a, life yeah he was, Ooh, yes. that cortisol Oh, flowing man. through your veins that that's got to do a number on the old heart muscle oh, yeah um he won the pulitzer prize for history in 1932 for his memoir my experiences in the world war um after that was his, the title yep so I mean, not a creative man yeah i mean it was kind of <laughs> like yeah, i mean you know a really nice essay straightforward you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and after his World War One successes, General John J. Pershing was actually the first to be deemed General of the Armies in the United States. So because the five-star rank had yet to be created, Pershing remained a four-star general, and his four-star insignia was gold rather than the traditional silver. Okay. And the five-star designation was created in 1944, but the War Department specified that Pershing was still to be considered the highest-ranking official in the military. Okay. So he was still alive then. I see. And okay. because the five-star general rank was created, they needed Pershing's thing to be hired, to be just higher. like George Washington. Oh, okay. So the only two guys who have ever been general of the armies are Pershing and George Washington. Okay, good to know. Nobody's ever been higher. Um, I'm going to take a little little pause and tell you how military operations get their names. Oh, have like, you ever wondered? Like Operation, we're doing Operation Chocolate Milk. Like bring Ooh, that's it in. A good one. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. So the practice of naming modern military operations is believed to have begun during World War One. Okay. Uh, Germany branded missions with religious and mythological titles. So things like Valkyrie or Archangel. Oh, like very sure. like oh very, very German. Yeah. Code names were necessary, especially as communication technology evolved. So in nineteen forty three, Churchill dictated a note that said, in part, that quote, operations in which large numbers of men may lose their lives should not be given names that are too boastful, too despondent, or of a frivolous character. Mm. So he didn't want like he didn't want them to come up with names for something like this is Operation Bunny Hop and then like yeah. have to go to some poor mother and tell her that her son, son died, died in Operation, Operation Bunny, Bunny Hop. Hop. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that'd be awful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Churchill personally chose the name Operation Overlord for the Allied invasion of German-occupied France in June 1944. Uh, the United States named its first operations after colors. But when colors began to run out, sure. the War Department drew up a list of 10,000 common nouns and adjectives, avoiding proper nouns, geographical terms, and names of ships that might give military <laughs> clues away to the enemy. Wow. So these days, for naming military operations, there are 24 Defense Department entities, each of which is assigned a series of two-letter alphabetic sequences. For example, the Atlantic Command has the letter groups AG to AL, ES to EZ, JG to JL, QA to QF, SM to SR, and UM to UR. So what? they had to come up with words that would start with the two letters oh. that are within those alphabetic sequences. So 
1983, the Atlantic Command um, for the invasion of Grenada, they needed to come up with an operation name. So they started with the letters U-R and they came up with Urgent. And then they added Fury to the end of it. Urgent Fury. that to the War Department uh, indicated that since it began with U-R, that it came from the Atlantic Command. Okay. So so Mm -hmm. it's... It's indicative, but only internally of what's going on. Of who to a came up extent. with it. Yeah. And then they have to kind of be creative and more, come up with Yeah. A little bit more nonsense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's um, interesting. But all of this can be overridden if naming seems important enough. And that seems to be happening more and more. So basically, since 1989, U.S. military operations have been nicknamed with an eye towards shaping domestic and international perceptions. So like Operation Enduring Freedom. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, Yes. Yeah, we're enduring that freedom. Yes, things like that. Okay. Liberty, justice, A- those absolutely. words. Absolutely. Yeah. I get it. Not okay. too many Operation Bunny Hops happening. Um, there are three major World War II operations that I want to tell you about before I tell you about the generals. Okay. So Operation Torch is okay. the British United States invasion of the French North Africa during North African campaign of World War II. So that part started November 8th, 1942. Operation Torch is the first major operation that U.S. troops undertook in the European North African theater of World War II. Um, operation Overlord, that's the code name for the Battle of Normandy, the Allied operation that launched the successful invasion of German-occupied Western Europe during World War II. The landing beaches, um, their code names were Utah, Omaha, Gold, Juno, and Sword. And that operation was launched on June 6, 1944 with the Normandy landings. Um, so that specific day was actually titled Operation Neptune, more commonly known as D-Day. Mm. Um, and in that operation, a 1,200-plane airborne assault preceded an amphibious assault involving more than 5,000 vessels. Nearly 160,000 troops crossed the English Channel on June 6, and more than 2 million Allied troops were in France by the end of August. Big deal. Yeah, Big my, turning point. My great-uncle, uh, Sam, my grandfather's brother, oh. died at Normandy. He's buried wow. on the beaches. Yeah, that's really yeah. wild. Isn't that crazy? I know that's all I that's know. That's all about you know about him. him. Wow. That's all I know about him. Yeah. And then Operation Downfall. So this actually never occurred. It was the proposed Allied plan for the invasion of Japan near the end of World War II. The planned operation was abandoned when Japan surrendered following the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Soviet declaration of war and the Soviet invasion of Manchuria. So Operation Downfall, this was like the plan to like, all right, we're ending this. But they ended up doing the the nuclear uh, yeah. way out fat man instead. little boy mm-hmm. yeah yeah good one yeah. so officially world war ii europe yeah yeah a minute uh the allies are france poland the united kingdom united states australia canada and the soviet union australia. these are all the big guys yeah oh yeah there were lots of australians really? and new zealands that fought in world war ii that's the anzac like, oh, group that yes. you hear about okay mm-hmm. yep and then the Axis powers were Germany, Italy, and Japan. Mm-hmm. So World War II was officially 1938 to 1945. The U.S. didn't get involved really until 1941 after Pearl Harbor. Uh, the World War II theaters were fought in Europe, the Pacific, and Northern Africa. So this was kind of spreading. Mm-hmm. So the generals, you got to know. George Catlett Marshall Jr., 
known as George C. Marshall. Born in 1880, died in 1959. He was the chief of staff of the U.S. Army under Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt and Harry S. Truman, and later served as Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense under Truman. As chief of staff of the U.S. Army, Marshall organized the largest military expansion in U.S. history and received promotion to five-star rank as General of the Army. Marshall coordinated Allied operations in Europe and the Pacific until the end of the war. In addition to being hailed as the organizer of Allied victory by Winston Churchill, Time Magazine named Marshall its Man of the Year for 1943. From December 15, 1945 to January 1947, he served as a special envoy to China in an unsuccessful effort to negotiate a coalition government between the nationalists of Chiang Kai-shek and communists under Mao Zedong. As Secretary of State from 1947 to 1949, Marshall received credit for the Marshall Plan, officially the European Recovery Program, ERP. Um, which was an American initiative to aid Western Europe, where the United States gave over $13 billion uh, dollars that in 2016 U.S. dollars, that's nearly $110 billion dollars oh in economic assistance for Europe's post-war rebuilding, the success of which was recognized with the award of the 1953 Nobel Peace Prize. He was the first career military man to receive that award. So George C. Marshall, five-star general. Just great. Solid guy. Yeah. yeah. Next, Dwight David Ike Eisenhower. You've heard of him. I've heard of him. I like Ike. He was uh, born in 1890, died in 1969. So during World War II, um, Ike was a five-star general in the U.S. Army and served as Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Forces in Europe. He was responsible for planning and supervising the invasion of North Africa and Operation Torch in 42-43 and the successful invasion of France and Germany in 44-45 from the Western Front. And then later, you know, he served as the 34th President of the United States from 1953 to 1961 and was also the first first American president to be bound by the 22nd Amendment, which limits the number of times that one can be elected to the office of the presidency. And uh, Ike was the only president to serve active duty in both World War I and World War II. Oh, wow. Okay. Five-star general. So was he the last military president? Um, like they're, the last they're like, general the last president? Ge- yeah, the only one that was ever a general. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, like... You know, Bush Sr. served in the Air Force and, sure. you know, the stuff like that. Yeah. Like Kennedy was yeah, Kennedy in the was, Navy. Like, did something, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was the last one who was like known first yes. for yes. being Absolutely. like a military leader mm-hmm. and then became, okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, next general, Douglas MacArthur, mm-hmm. 1880 to 1964. He was an American five-star general and field marshal of the Philippine Army. His nickname was the Napoleon of Luzon. Oh, that's not that's not a great nickname. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was good there. Okay. Um, so he was chief of staff of the United States Army during the 1930s and played a prominent role in the Pacific Theater during World War II. He received the Medal of Honor for his service in the Philippines campaign, and he also led U.S. troops in support of South Korea until he was fired by President Truman in 1951. Oh. And then he later had a famous speech to Congress in which he noted, quote, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. Five-star general. Five stars. Yeah. Five stars for that quote. That. Beautiful. My boy. Henry Harley Hap Arnold. So Hap Arnold. Hap Arnold. Hap Arnold. 1886 to 1950. Uh, He learned how to fly from the Wright brothers. Get. Stop it. Are you serious? I'm just. Full circle. I just have my notebook. I'm just doodling little hearts around Hap Arnold. Oh, so you're a fan. A big, big fan. Big Hap fan. Yeah, big Hap fan. (laughs) 
he was one of the first military pilots worldwide. He rose to command the Army Air Forces immediately prior to American entry into World War II and directed its hundredfold expansion from an organization of little more than 20,000 men and 800 combat aircraft into the largest and most powerful air force in the world. He held the grades of General of the Army and General of the Air Force. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Arnold was an aviation pioneer, um, the chief of the Air Corps, uh, commanding general of the U.S. Army Air Forces, the only U.S. Air Force general to hold the five-star rank, and the only officer to hold a five-star rank in two different U.S. military services. So the Air Force hadn't really like been created yet. They created oh. it during World War II. Um, so he was like a general of the Army, and then they were like, oh, but you're really good at planes. You're the general of the Air Force now. So it's like Queen Anne being the queen of England, and then yes. she was the queen of Great of Britain. Of Great Britain, yes. I'm making all sorts of Got connections. It. So uh, my man, Hap, uh, he was also the founder of Project RAND, which evolved into one of the world's largest nonprofit global policy think tanks, the oh. RAND Corporation. And he was one of the founders of Pan American World Airways. Oh, cool. Yeah. Hap Arnold, five-star general. <laughs> Next. Omar Nelson Bradley. His nickname is Brad. Brad Bradley. Brad Bradley. Uh, 1893 to 1981. Was called the Soldier's General. He was the first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and oversaw the U.S. military's policymaking in the Korean War. He received his first frontline command in Operation Torch, serving under General George S. Patton in North Africa. After Patton was reassigned, Bradley commanded um, the Corps in the Tunisia Campaign and the Allied Invasion of Sicily. He commanded the 1st United States Army during the invasion of Normandy. And after the breakout from Normandy, he took command of the the 12th United States Army Group, which ultimately comprised 43 divisions and 1.3 million men, the largest body of American soldiers to ever serve under a single field commander. Wow. So one guy telling 1.3 million men what to do. And you know what? He did it up. He did it right. They won the war. Five-star general. (laughs) Getting into this. Yeah. So uh, Brad Bradley here, he succeeded Eisenhower as U.S. Army Chief of Staff in 1948. He never really retired, though. Uh, He served on active duty continuously from August 1st, 1911 until his death in April 1981. Stop it. He was he was a total of 69 years, eight months and seven days. The longest active duty career in the history of the United States Armed Forces. And before he died in 1981, he was the USA's last surviving five-star general. Wow. Omar Bradley. Five stars. <laughs> all right. All right. Now, not a five-star general. Okay. I, got, I named you all the five-star generals. Great. We got George Smith Patton, George S. Patton. Oh, yeah. Okay, 1885 to 1945. He commanded the U.S. 7th Army in the Mediterranean and European theaters of World War II, but is best known for his leadership of the U.S. 3rd Army in France and Germany following the Allied invasion of Normandy in June 44. Patton led U.S. troops into the Mediterranean theater with an invasion of Casablanca during Operation Torch in 42 and commanded the U.S. 7th Army during the Allied invasion of Sicily, where he was the first Allied commander to reach Messina. Patton returned to command the third army following the invasion of normandy in june 44 where he led a highly successful rapid armored drive across france he led the relief of beleaguered american troops at bastonia during the battle of the bulge and advanced the army into nazi germany by the end of the war Patton died in germany in 1945 as a result of injuries from an automobile accident and he is buried in luxembourg um so there was that the film, the 1970 film Patton. Um, starring George C. Starring Scott. George C. Scott, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of 
made the public feel better about Patton. Like it was very like, hey, he was a great guy. A, he uh, was he was a kind of a jerk. Yeah. Like um there were two really high profile incidents where um he had some subordinates who had been like shell shocked basically. Oh, and he slapped them. <gasps> like this was and this like made the news. Like this was like Ugh. George, like maybe don't maybe do you that. shouldn't have done that. Well so he I mean he was a he was a good military commander, I guess, sure. but maybe not the most personable guy. No, and apparently neither was George C. Scott. <laughs> I mean, he was married like I think seven times, and Oof. was, uh, for all intents and purposes, if not an actual physical abuser, he was, um, and a verbal abuser mm. of women. Yeah. So. So. Four star general. Four star general. Patton, not mm. a five star general. And only five guys in the history of the army have been five star generals. Yeah. And oh, I yeah. just named you them all. They were all World War II generals. Yeah. There you go. Okay. A couple decades later, we have the Vietnam War. And mm. um, we had a listener who um, suggested that we do an episode on the Vietnam War. And I will do one in the future. But right now, I'm just, just talking to you about the two generals that you should know from the okay. Vietnam War. Great. So, Vietnam War. Uh, took place in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. It was North Vietnam versus South Vietnam, which the U.S. aided the South. Um, and it was actually pretty, it was from 1955 to 1975. Most of the Americans' mm-hmm. um, involvement was during the 1960s. But so the guys you got to know, William Childs Westmoreland, known as Westie, Okay. Uh, born in 1914, died in 2005. He most notably commanded U.S. forces during the Vietnam War from 64 to 68. He served as chief of staff of the U.S. Army from 68 to 72. Before the war, he was the youngest ever major general of the U.S. Army at age 42. And he adopted a strategy of attrition against the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army, mm-hmm. attempting to drain them of manpower and supplies. Um, his strategy was called search and destroy. Oh, yeah. Um, he also made use of the U.S.'s edge in artillery and air power, both in tactical confrontations and in relentless strategic bombing of North Vietnam. Westmoreland's strategy was ultimately politically unsuccessful. Growing U.S. casualties in the draft undermined U.S. support for the war, while large-scale casualties among non-combatants weakened South Vietnamese support. The government of South Vietnam never succeeded in establishing enough legitimacy to quell defections to the Viet Cong, and Westmoreland's Saigon headquarters came under attack during the Tet Offensive. Mm. So, the guy that took over for him, Creighton Abrams. Um, he was born in 1914, died in 1974. He was a U.S. Army general who commanded military operations of the Vietnam War from 68 to 72. His tenure of command was not marked by the public optimism of his predecessors. So while Westmoreland had for years run the war using the search and destroy tactics, yeah. this gave way for Abrams' clear and hold strategies. So under his authority, American forces were broken up into small units that would live with and train the South Vietnamese civilians oh, yeah. to defend their villages mm-hmm. from guerrilla or conventional northern incursions with heavy weapons. So again, in contrast to Westmoreland, Abrams, um, he implemented counterinsurgency tactics that focused on winning the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese rural population. So the strategy was actually kind of successful in reducing the influence of the guerrilla forces in South Vietnam. But again, the war increasingly became a conventional war between the military forces of South Vietnam and North Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So following the election of President Richard Nixon, Abrams began implementing the Nixon Doctrine, referred to as Vietnamization, which aimed to decrease U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So he kind of inherited a a little bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, It was trying to, you know, fix it. But then by that point, U.S. was kind of like, we're going to we're We're going to get get out out of here. Mm -hmm. Um, So, again, I'll do an episode on on the Vietnam War at some point. Um, 
because there's a there's a lot to know about it and i feel like um most americans like if you haven't studied it in history you're just like oh that's that war we lost but like it wasn't yeah uh, it's (laughs) yeah and ken burns just did the documentary Mm, yes which i didn't get a chance to finish we should both watch it okay then i'll do an episode on great Great. i love it um it was it started out very very good Uh but it's uh very dark yeah Yeah. it is very dark there's only a couple of things to laugh about with that one um but yeah so vietnam war you have um westmoreland and then abrams following Mm -hmm. him up the gulf war Oh, yeah. 1991. Nostalgia. The defense of Saudi Arabia against Iraq. So this is the only war I'm mentioning that we were alive for. Yep. Um, do you know our Do you know our general from the Gulf War that we got to know? Oh, I mean, we were sitting on wicker furniture watching the news <laughs> for Gulf War. Storman so Norman Schwarzkopf Jr. Oh, uh, so right. His dad was actually like a general in World War II. So he's a junior. But Norman Schwarzkopf Jr., a.k.a. Storm and Norman, led all coalition forces in the Gulf War. So he was born in 1934, died in 2012. Assuming command of the U.S. Central Command in 1988, Schwarzkopf was called on to respond to the invasion of Kuwait in 1990 by the forces of Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Initially tasked with defending Saudi Arabia from Iraqi aggression, Schwarzkopf's command eventually grew to an international force of over 750,000 troops. After diplomatic relations broke down, he planned and led Operation Desert Storm, an extended air campaign followed by a highly successful 100-hour ground offensive, which defeated the Iraqi army and liberated Kuwait in early 1991. Great. Gulf War. Storm and Norman. Gulf War. Yep. (laughs) All right. There's just a few other generals that that I want you to know. Okay. Okay. Benjamin O. Davis Sr., Born in 1880, died in 1970. He was the first African-American to rise to the rank of general in the U.S. military in 1940. Um, And then also, he was the father of Benjamin O. Davis Jr., who was the first African-American general officer in the United States Air Force, a commander of the Tuskegee Airmen, who was also advanced to four-star general by President Bill Clinton in 1998. So we have a pair of father-son African-American generals. That's cool. Great. Uh, Next, Alexander Haig. Okay. Okay. He was an answer at Geek Bowl that I was like, I don't think I've ever heard of this man. But he was like a big, he was a big deal. It was a big deal? Okay. Yeah. Alexander Haig. So um, 1924 to 2010. He was the U.S. Secretary of State under President Ronald Reagan and the White House Chief of Staff under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. So prior to these cabinet level positions, he retired as a four-star general from the U.S. Army, having been Supreme Allied Commander of Europe during the 1970s after serving as the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army. And Haig was the second military leader to head the State Department after George Marshall. So good. Yeah. Okay. One one general is the Secretary of State. Two oh. generals is the Secretary of State. Wah, ah, ah, let's ah, get to ah, the ah. third general who became Secretary of State. Oh yeah. That's our boy Colin Powell. Oh, uh, Colin Powell. So still alive. Yep. Nineteen thirty-seven to the present. Uh, he is a retired four-star general in the U.S. Army. He was the New York City-born son of Jamaican immigrants. During his military career, Powell served as National Security Advisor, as Commander of the U.S. Army Forces Command, and as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. During the Persian Gulf War, Powell was the first, and so far the only, African-American to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He was U.S. Secretary of State under George W. Bush from 2001 to 2005, and was the first African-American to serve in that position. Mm-hmm. All right, and last, Anne E. Dunwoody. What? 1953 to the present. Anne, 
a retired general of the U.S. Army. Get it, Anne. The first woman in U.S. military and uniformed service history to achieve a four-star officer rank, receiving her fourth star on November 14th, 2008. Wow. Yeah. One, amazing. Two, what the hell? Why did it take so long? Well, you know, there's been a... A little bit of a uh, back and forth about having women in the oh, military. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's so, true. <laughs> you know, maybe in the I last like right. four or five decades, I yeah, think has been true. only when women could could get to higher positions. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Um, and I really liked it. She, her inspiration for, for being in the military. She said, my own personal hero is my dad. He's a proud World War II Korea Vietnam veteran. And he was a real soldier soldier. And much of who I am is founded on what I learned from my dad as a soldier, as a patriot, and as a father. So that was really sweet. And like, she was awesome. And she's still alive. She's still alive. She's just retired. But the first woman four-star general. Good to know. And Dunwoody. So I think I told you about like 20 people. I'm sorry. that's fine. You know. Oh my gosh, please. You can listen. You can go back and re-listen. Yeah, if you you really want to. But... um, Long story history of the of the U.S. Army. You know what? It's rich. And yeah. It's full. And yeah. I'm glad that you gave it to us. Thank awesome. you. All right. Time for my quiz. This quiz is called General Knowledge. It's actually a quiz on breakfast cereals from General Mills and war films. Question one. This 1962 Cold War thriller starring Frank Sinatra and Lawrence Harvey is about the son of a prominent U.S. political family who is brainwashed into becoming an unwitting assassin for a communist conspiracy during the Korean War. Adapted from a novel from Richard Condon, what's the title of this film? Later remade in 2004 with Denzel Washington. Question 2. The first mascot of this sugary cereal was a wizard named Cookie Jarvis, who, with one wave of his wand, magically turned cereal bowls into cookie jars. In 1985, the wizard was replaced by a robber and his cop, who were joined by a dog a few years later. What's the name of this cereal, formerly manufactured by Ralston Purina? Question 3. Which 1987 comedy-drama war film, based on the experiences of Armed Forces Radio Service DJ Adrian Cronauer, garnered the late Robin Williams a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor? Question 4. Similar to Monopoly tokens, the marshmallows and Lucky Charms have seen changes over the years. In spring 2018, the hourglass-shaped marshmallow will be taken out of the lineup and replaced by which mythical on-trend shape chosen by social media users who were able to vote via emoji? Question 5. Inspired by real events, the Steve McQueen World War II prisoner movie, The Great Escape, had allied prisoners of war digging three secret tunnels under their barracks to escape the high-security German war camp. What were the names of these three titles, which you might commonly see as a placeholder for multiple unspecific people? Question 6. General Mills used to produce Count Chocula and other monster-related cereals year-round, but since 2010, they've only been released seasonally around Halloween. Don't be scared. Can you name the other monster cereals that typically appear on store shelves with Count Chocula? Question 7. Set in the American South against the backdrop of the American Civil War and the Reconstruction Era, the epic film Gone with the Wind tells the story of Scarlett O'Hara. In which state does the film take place, though none of it was actually shot there? Question 8. I'll name you three potential breakfast cereals, and you tell me if each was ever a real cereal manufactured by General Mills, or if I made it up. First, Banana Wackies. Second, Baron Von Redberry. 
Third, Calamity Crunch-A-Bunch. Question nine. Lawrence of Arabia is not a biblical epic, but actually a war film based on the life of T.E. Lawrence, a British archaeologist, military officer, and diplomat. During which war on the Arabian Peninsula is this film set? And finally, 90s kids in the U.S. were distraught when this maple-flavored breakfast cereal disappeared in 2006, though they still could acquire a bilingual box of Croque-Pain Doré when visiting Canada. In 2015, General Mills actually brought this cereal back by popular demand. What is it? I'll give you about a minute to think, and then I'll be back with your answers. You know what? I was really, I was, um, I was strong at the beginning uh-huh. and then I fell uh-huh. off and I think I came back up. All again. right. So I'm ready. Great. Here we go. All right. Okay. And we're back. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Question one. This 1962 Cold War thriller is about the son of a prominent U.S. political family who is brainwashed into becoming an unwitting assassin for a communist conspiracy during the Korean War. Adapted from a novel by Richard Condon, what's the title of this film later remade in 2004 with Denzel Washington? That is called The Manchurian Candidate. You are correct. Thank you. So uh, the topic of the movie was considered so highly sensitive that it was censored and prohibited just before its theatrical release in many of the former Iron Curtain countries, such as Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. And the theatrical premiere for most of these countries was held after the collapse of the Soviet (laughs) Union in 1993. So basically, people had to wait like 31 years to see this movie if you lived in Poland. And by the time that then Denzel Washington version came out. They were like, oh, we just saw this. Yeah. Yeah. We saw it by downloading it illegally. <laughs> um, the Denzel Washington version I saw. I saw uh-huh. it in theaters. Um, I thought it was pretty good. It didn't get very Great. good reviews, but I enjoyed it. Ooh, I, um, oh, you know what? I don't want to give any spoilers oh. to anybody about Great. anything. Good, good. But um, but yeah, there is there is a little bit of things that are different in the 2004 yeah. and the 1962 version. But the book gets like really into some things that Ooh. they don't show in the movies. So, I don't know. FYI. All right. Question two. The first mascot of this sugary seal was a wizard named Cookie Jarvis, who, <laughs> I love it, with one wave of his wand, magically turned cereal bowls into cookie jars. In 1985, the wizard was replaced by a robber and a cop who were joined by a dog a few years later. What's the name of this cereal, formerly manufactured by Ralston Purina? That is called Kauki Crisp. I'm so glad that you did it like that, because <laughs> that's how I wrote it. Kauki Crisp. <laughs> So um, Ralston Purina sold it to General Mills in 1997. And um, since 2005, the mascot has not been Chip the Dog and the Cookie Crook. What? It's been Chip the Wolf. 
What? For like more than a decade, Chip what? the Wolf has been trying to sell us Kauki Chris. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. He's a wolf. Yeah. I what am. do wolves do with cookies? Dogs love cookies. <laughs> wolves love meat. Yeah. We should write in. Campaign. I'm going to write apparently in. They apparently seem very receptive to to responses from their uh, their yeah, base. We might so. get some coupons. Ooh, that's good. I like that. Write in campaign to bring back Chip the Dog. <laughs> All right. Question three. Which 1987 comedy drama war film based on the experiences of armed forces radio service DJ Adrian Cronauer garnered Robin Williams a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor? That is Good Morning Vietnam. Yes. I love so that movie. the film received outstanding reviews from film critics and went on to become the fourth highest grossing film of 1987, which I was like, what were the other highest grossing films of 1987? Tell me, Julia. They were Three Men and a Baby, okay, yeah. Fatal Attraction, Ooh. and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Okay, all of them solid 1987. films. 1987. A Tom Selleck joint. <laughs> Glenn Close. Glenn Close. And, and then you got- Eddie Murphy? Yeah, Eddie Murphy. That's, Great. You know what? That's a funny movie too. Yeah. And it holds up. Awesome. Great. Great cinema in 1987. <laughs> 80s, man. <laughs> Question four. Similar to Monopoly tokens, the marshmallows and Lucky Charms have seen changes over the years. In spring 2018, the hourglass-shaped marshmallow will be taken out of the lineup, replaced by which mythical on-trend shape chosen by social media users who were able to vote via emoji? Ugh, is it like... <sighs> And like a unicorn it is. horn. Yep. Is it? It's a unicorn. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, ugh, that's so not. General Mills calls the marshmallow shapes charms. They oh, are the course. charms of the lucky charms. So the new unicorn charm features hues of bright purples and blues. And it is the first ever marshmallow to be inspired and created by kids. So it's a phallus. So it's a no, marshmallow phallus. It's a head. Oh, it's, it's a, a whole, it's a whole unicorn horse head, head with a with a horn yeah oh, can they do they have that kind of technology where they can get detail we're in the 21st century they can right. make a marshmallow shape out of anything Ooh. yeah so okay. um yeah lucky charms marshmallow blend will continue to feature eight lucky charms including hearts stars horseshoes clovers, clovers blue, blue moons, moons rainbows red balloons and now magical unicorns all right i might buy a box all right I might buy a box Question five. Inspired by real events, the Steve McQueen World War II prisoner movie, The Great Escape, had allied prisoners of war digging three secret tunnels under their barracks to escape the high security German war camp. What were the names of these three tunnels, which you might commonly see as a placeholder for multiple unspecific people? You're going to say, I don't know. And then I'm going to say, how about I give you, I'll tell you one of them and you tell me the other ones. Uh, no, Julia. <laughs> The I way have, you were looking at me. Well, at first I didn't under I didn't quite understand okay. the question. So I'm gonna go with Jane Doe, John Doe, Baby Doe. Okay. The first one is Tom. Tom Tom America. Tom uh, Second one is Dick. Tom, Dick, and Harry? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. See, I'm thinking of like anonymous dead bodies, and you're oh. thinking like like vaudeville. Yeah. I should say you not you're thinking that's the answer. <laughs> Yes. Okay, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Yes. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> the story of The Great Escape was adapted from Paul Brickhill's book, The Great Escape. He had been a prisoner at Stalag Luft Three during World War II, and the film was based on real events, but with numerous changes made to increase its drama and appeal. So in reality, there were no escapes by aircraft or motorcycle, uh, and the motorcycle sequence was asked for by Steve McQueen, of course. who did the stunt riding himself. Yeah. Um, I watched this movie for the first time like last Christmas, and I was like, how have I not seen this movie before? It's awesome. I mean, it is like three hours long. It is a sure. little too long for me, oh, but yeah, like, yeah. it was so good. Oh, Steve McQueen is yeah. just 
Uh, him in a gray turtleneck? Ugh. Ugh. Oh my God. Yeah, his like beautiful, like American handsomeness oh with my his gosh. blue eyes and his blonde hair. And and an like, incredible jaw. He had the football. He just kept like, oh, just the baseball ble- he kept tossing. Yeah. Bleeds America. Mm. Steve McQueen. Mm. Mm. R.I.P. All right. Uh, question six. General Mills used to produce Count Chocula and other monster-related cereals year-round, but since 2010, they've only been released seasonally for Halloween. Don't be scared. Can you name the other monster cereals that typically appear on store shelves with Count Chocula? Okay. Uh-huh. All right. You got Boo Berry. Uh-huh. You got Mummy Marshmallows or something like that? Choco Mummies? Bummy, <laughs> bummy Mummies? <laughs> bummy Mummies? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a flavor. Um... What What's, else is there? There's a pink one. There's a pink one? Pink? Is it called pink? Is there nope. pink in it? All uh, right. They look pink. The monster is pink. Oh, yeah. Ooh, what is his name? What is he? Oh, he's a, a zombie. No. A pink zombie. No. A, oh, a Frankenstein. Uh-huh. Frankenberry? <laughs> yeah. Frankenberry. <laughs> you have Booberry and Frankenberry. Okay. Um. So also, there were two other monster cereals, oh. which were discontinued decades ago, but made a limited edition brief reappearance in 2013. And those were Fruit Brute and Fruity Yummy Mummy. Okay, so that must have been what I was thinking yeah. of. No, that's absolutely not true. I don't um, remember also, apparently, all. like, Fruit Brute made an appearance in a couple, like, Tarantino movies. And, like, what? so people, oh, like, went, like, you know, it was crazy. Very, you know, people like it's it like that Szechuan sauce all over again. Oh, oh yeah, gotta get that sauce, Morty. So that's four berry flavored cereals, and it's only true. one count chocula. Yeah. I'm just yeah. you know putting that out there that the ratio seems off to yeah. me. Yeah, well, that must be why they discontinued to good. Them, you know, who needs a fruit brute? You know what I mean? What's a brute? Uh, it was a wolf. Oh, yeah, like a werewolf. Okay. Yeah. Uh, question seven, set in the American South against the backdrop of the American Civil War and Reconstruction, the epic film Gone with the Wind tells the story of Scarlett O'Hara. In which state does the film take place, though none of it was actually shot there? I'm going to go with Georgia. Yes. Yes. Also, the film's premiere was held in Atlanta, Georgia on December 15th, 1939. The movie is between 221 and 238 minutes long, depending on if you hear the overture, on tract, intermission, and exit music. And with inflation is the highest grossing film of all time but again that's because like movies stayed in theaters for like five years yeah yeah i mean it's not like they were churning out movies like you know 17 a Mm -hmm. month yeah and you had like one week to make all your money or something yeah Yeah, i don't know ridiculous all right question eight i'll name you three potential breakfast cereals you tell me if each was ever a real cereal manufactured by general mills or if i made it up Ooh, i'm excited about first banana wackies I'm going to say you made that up. No, it's real. Oh, my gosh. It was around gosh. from 65 to 68. Okay. Baron Von Redberry. Uh, real. Real. Yes. From 1972 to 1975, and it was paired with Sir Grapefellow cereal. So you could buy like Sir Grapefellow and Baron Von Redberry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, question, and the third one, Calamity Crunchabunch. I'm going to say you made that up. Yes, that one's yes. Okay, good. Yeah. All right, question nine. Lawrence of Arabia, not a biblical epic, but actually a war film based on the life of T.E. Lawrence, a British archaeologist, military officer, and diplomat. During which war on the Arabian Peninsula is this film set? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Is it? No, I don't know. World War One. Really? Yeah. I was thinking like way yeah. earlier. I'm thinking like 1850s. Yeah, like when I was reading about this, I was like, 
are you kidding me? Like the name to me is like, this is like Moses. Ancient. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, so World War I. Uh, Lawrence was renowned for his liaison role during the Sinai and Palestine campaign and the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire during the First World War. And the variety of his activities and experiences, along with his ability to describe them vividly in writing, earned him international fame as Lawrence of Arabia. Okay. And then they made the movie about him. I see, I see, I see. Yeah. And finally, question 10. 90s kids in the U.S. were distraught when this maple-flavored breakfast cereal disappeared in 2006, though they could still acquire a bilingual box of croque-pain doré when visiting Canada. In 2015, General Mills actually brought this cereal back by popular demand. What is it? Is it like the French toast one? Yes. Is it just called French toast? French toast crunch. Oh, French toast, French toast crunch. Yes. Uh, full disclosure. <gasps> I do not like the taste of maple. <laughs> wow. I know I'm really a alienating New Yorker, a lot of we're people. We're basically Canadian. We are. And I don't like the taste of maple. And I especially don't like the taste of like maple in mm. cereal. It just, it just turns me off. Well, Julia just threw a rock I at did. me. I did. She's I'm so, so mad. mad. <laughs> I can't find my fidget spinners. Yeah. I'm holding like a rock right <laughs> okay. now. But yeah, so I was not as thrilled as maybe oh. the rest of our generation. Yeah. But you knew it. Oh, yeah, I knew it. Yeah. So yeah, great sure. job. That's no, great job to you, Julia. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much for teaching us about generals. It was, it was very informative. Um, I mm-hmm. have a listener submitted trivia. Listener submitted trivia. So good. Um, so we got an email from L-Town Ann. Shout hey. out to L-Town Ann. And uh, she was talking about, um, she emailed us and she said, "Longtime listener. Love the episode. Uh, she's talking about, oh, my episode on Queens. Yes. So um, she gave, she said kind of a long tidbit about the white ship, the white oh, ship yeah. disaster. We, where we were kind of like, what? They only had two ships back then. <laughs> well, she corrected us. <laughs> she said this was much more than losing half the Navy. The story is the king's son, William, uh, was on the ship with the sons of all the English nobility. Ooh. So they had been drinking and whooping it up most of the day waiting for the tide so they could head back to England. And the captain and the crew were likely pretty hammered too. So Stephen <laughs> of Blois, you remember Blois. Stephen of Blois, who eventually overtook the throne. He was the princess cousin. He realized this was not a good scene and he feigned a bout of intestinal distress so he could be towed back to shore to get away from the gang that were probably busy Mm -hmm. puking over the sides. Sure. So the tide finally shifted whichever way they needed and the prince commanded that they set sail. But the crew, drunk as they were, were steering much like any drunks who pretend (gasps) to have complete control and bashed the ship into a big rock in the harbor, causing it to sink nearly immediately (gasps) and drowning the entire young generation from all of England's noble families. Hence the catastrophe. Oh, man. So it'd be like if some terrible tragedy took out not only William and Harry, but George, Eugenie, (gasps) Beatrice, Princess Anne's kids, Andrew and Edward, the Duke of Arendelle, etc. Oh, my gosh. So Stephen, so it was a big deal. Yes. So Stephen of Blois miraculously, quote unquote, recovered, got himself back to England and rode hell for leather to claim the throne before word of tragedy got so far. Oh, man. And spent the next few years battling Empress Matilda. So, it, so he was like the guy at the frat party that was like, yeah, you guys should drink more. I'm going to go now. Bye. I, I get the sense that he was more like the guy at the frat who was like, if you guys don't stop. I'm studying upstairs. I'm going to call the cops. And they were like, fuck you, Stephen Blah. We're going to do what we want. And so he like marched away. I'm going to stay at my girlfriend's place tonight. 
and then he became king and of England. And he probably said something like, "I hope you guys all die. <laughs> I hope and you guys then- all die." And then, and then the frat house set, gets set on fire, yeah. and then all the Wall Street sons go up and smoke. <laughs> and then Stephen Applause is like, "I guess I'm running all of our economy now." <laughs> That's I think great. this metaphor got a little, yeah. little too far away thanks, from me. But. Thanks, Anne. Yeah, thank you for that, Anne. Um, so yeah, <laughs> if you have any more listeners submitted trivia yes. or you have any um, extrapolations of things that we have mentioned on the podcast, please feel free to let us know, and we're happy to share that with with and, the rest of and everybody. Where can they share that to oh, us, my Julia? Gosh. So you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at misinfopod. You can find us on Facebook. We're misinformation colon a trivia podcast. Did I say them all? Oh, we have a website, triplededub.misinfopod.com. And you'll notice that uh, both our Twitter and our um, website uh-huh. has a little PayPal tip jar. Just a little tip jar. Just a little tip jar. We're certainly not... Forcing anyone to give us some money. We've already had a couple of donations. Yes. Shout out to Dave T and Kathleen B. <laughs> longtime listeners. Yeah. Thank you for your support. Yeah. Our first donor was my dad. So I feel, first of all, very adult. <laughs> <laughs> and not relying on my parents yeah. at all. No. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yes, thank you very much to them. And, you know, throw us a buck. You know, if you want, if you like the show, if you want a, us to continue to do it, if it, we just need a little extra money to like cover our costs. Yeah. We're not making money off of this. No. We're not getting rich. I mean, we both work at museums. We're so, used to being yeah, we're poor. We're used to not being rich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you have any interest in that, uh, the PayPal account tip jar is there. So thank you very much you. in advance to everybody. And, um, and where can, oh, and people, you should tell other people about the podcast please. and then tell them where they can find it. Well, you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or uh, you can use any uh, podcast app you want with our RSS feed. You can also stream it from our aforementioned website, www.missinfopod.com. So um, thanks so much for listening, yeah, you guys. Thanks thank for you. hanging in with us on this corker. And uh, we now, hope to see it. Yeah, hope to see you next time. Drop and give me twenty. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.